Hi listeners, I'm your host Rebecca Kelly and welcome back to The Station, a fiction podcast about a girl named Ida Shepard who's trapped on an abandoned space station. Now before we begin, I have a small favor to ask. If you're enjoying The Station, please take a moment to leave it a five-star rating and if you're so inclined, feel free to write a review. It helps me out so much and I greatly appreciate every single one. In today's episode, we're going back in time to get a little background on the world before Ida's time on the space station. A world at war. Are you ready? Let's jump right in to chapter 9 of The Station. Ale was 8 years old when the war started, but the memory was still sharp in his mind like it was fixed there with a straight pin on his mental bulletin board. The unrest had been brewing for years under the surface of the world's political systems. That summer, the summer of the bombings, would turn out to be one of the darkest times in human history. It actually began years before with the Summer Olympics held in Sao Paulo, Brazil. South America had long been a host of the FIFA World Cup, but the Olympic Games had only been held on the continent one time prior to that, the 2016 games in Rio de Janeiro. The Rio games had been plagued with rumors of cash deficits, poor construction quality, and blown deadlines. When Sao Paulo won the bid many years later, heavy controls were put into place to ensure that these same issues did not occur again. The government of Brazil had grown stronger in the years since Rio, and they intended to redeem themselves with this new bid. The Brazilian government still lacked the funds necessary to make a successful bid without help. To fix this problem, they leaned on the shoulders of powerful drug cartels from all around the continent to provide money and manpower. This meant that billions of dollars of drug money flowed in and out of the country in an effort to have the city ready in time for the opening ceremony. But, just as they'd done so many years before in Rio, they quickly ran out of time and money, and desperation set in. The cartels capitalized on this desperation by offering up billions worth of high-risk debts. Cartel leaders began to occupy high positions of power in the Brazilian government, and a new family of drug lords came into the picture. The Guerrero family had control over the historic drug cartel called O Comando. Juan Guerrero, who was actually a native of Colombia, but had migrated to Brazil in his youth, was elected president of Brazil in a corrupt, violent election only six years after those fateful Olympic Games. It did not take long for Guerrero and O Comando to turn the government into a dictatorship. As the drug money flowed in, Brazil became one of the strongest governments in the world. The scenario was not unique. Violent dictatorships had risen up more often than not in the history of human civilization. What made this one different was the entrance of North Korea into the mix. Guerrero was a brilliant man, hardened by years in the cartel trenches. He knew that what Brazil needed to become a world superpower was weaponry, and he had his sights set on creating a nuclear arsenal. But if he wanted nuclear power, he needed help. North Korea had been developing nuclear technology for decades, to the detriment of their own international relations. They were hungry for a meaningful trade partner, and on the other side of the planet, Nobody paid much attention as Juan Guerrero and O Comando rose to the pinnacle of power. The meeting with Kim Yong Ho, 
the dictator of North Korea and Guerrero, took place under the radar. Guerrero came into Pyongyang under cover of a shipping vessel up the Taidong River. Once there, he had a quiet meeting with the aging dictator, and Guerrero got his first glimpse of the magnitude of the North Korean nuclear program. He quickly realized that he had struck gold. North Korea had the technology, the engineering power, and the materials to create a powerful nuclear arsenal. The world knew that the Koreans were dabbling in nuclear arms, but only Guerrero knew the strength and depth of what they'd developed in Pyongyang. The two dictators reached a deal, and Brazilian drug money started flowing into North Korea in exchange for nuclear technology. In the years following the secret alliance with North Korea, Guerrero quietly took control of the countries around Brazil. He got his deputies elected to political positions in the other South American countries through bribes, corrupt elections, and strategic murders. By the time the world started to take notice of the little government down in South America, the entire continent was under the control of the Brazilians through political partnerships. They called themselves the South Americans, or the SAs for short. Deep in the jungle, Guerrero had created his own state-of-the-art nuclear weapons manufacturing facility. His sights were now set on bigger goals. When observed from space, the Amazon basin is usually shrouded under a thick cloud of condensation. It's like looking at a river of clouds flowing through the sky. Locals knew about the high-tech facility located several kilometers northwest of Manaus. But the story went that the structure was built as a laboratory for habitat research. Much of it was underground to avoid being seen by airplanes, and the river of clouds provided the perfect cover from the prying eyes of satellites. Construction crew members and nuclear engineers alike were quarantined, unable to leave the facility under penalty of death. It was from this facility that the first attacks originated. They came in the middle of a steamy night in late June. Five stealth drone bombers launched from the secret facility, each carrying a 20 megaton thermonuclear bomb. Four of the drones were remotely piloted to New York City, Los Angeles, London, and Paris. The fifth drone was headed to Washington, D.C., but never made it. A radar malfunction caused it to fly off course and detonate over the Atlantic Ocean. They hit Los Angeles first, and approximately one hour later, New York City. By the time the London bomb fell six hours later, armed forces all over the world were on alert for the drones. The Paris bomber was caught by an ICBM prior to making landfall, and it detonated over the northern Atlantic Ocean. The bomb was so powerful that even though it hadn't hit its intended target, nuclear debris and radiation spread throughout the west coast of Europe burning and poisoning millions of people. The bombs caused four matching mushroom clouds that rose nearly 35 kilometers into the sky. The fireballs and resulting radiation clouds were so big they could be seen from space. By the end of the night, millions were dead and the world had changed forever. Unfortunately, the nuclear attack was only the beginning of the story. After the bombs dropped, the cyber attacks began. Guerrero was a competent military man and a ruthless leader. 
He knew that he would need more than a few flashy bombs to start and win a world war. He employed hundreds of hackers at his jungle compound. He understood that the cyber battle was just as important as the military battle. Not only did Guerrero have the Amazon hackers in his corner, but they sent word out to their rogue counterparts throughout the world. Every cyber terrorist on the globe was part of the arsenal. By the end of two days, they had taken out all satellite communications by implanting viruses into the computer code that controlled the satellite systems. Communication satellites became glorified heaps of metal. After communications were destroyed, the world reeled, trying to make sense of the attack and how they could fight back. Guerrero was ready for the next phase. He had amassed an army of over two million soldiers, all well-versed in alternative forms of guerrilla warfare communications. The officers of his army went through extensive training deep inside the underground passages of the Amazon facility. Then those officers had spread throughout South America, training fleets of soldiers that were stationed in strategic places around the continent. The satellite blackouts devastated the world on many levels. Computer servers depended heavily on precision timekeeping. GPS satellites were the primary means of keeping accurate time around the world. So within a day after the satellites went black, time itself began to falter. A half a second here and a half a second there, and soon computer systems started to fail. The internet crashed. Power and other utility companies were unable to control transmissions networks. The planet went dark. Travel ground to a halt as commercial airliners, which depended on satellites for communication and weather tracking, couldn't function. Then, just two days after the initial nuclear strike, huge armies of SA soldiers rained down on the countries of Central America, taking them down easily. It was only a week before they were knocking at the U.S. border with Mexico. Militaries had to revert to World War II-era communication systems like telegraphs and Morse code. Since most of the landline phone cable network had long since been abandoned throughout the world, there was no way for the average person to communicate. Everything had to start from scratch, and it all had to be done fast to prepare for the counterattack of the advancing SA armies. The events of those first few weeks marked the beginning of the deadliest war in human history. It lasted almost a decade, and millions of people died in the fight. But, out of the ruin, there was a silver lining. World powers who had formerly been bitter enemies united to fight against the essays. The resistance called themselves the Trusted Allies. Huge underground bunkers were constructed to house civilians and keep them safe from the attacking essay armies. People rallied together to find new ways to live and work in these underground habitats. They figured out ways to grow food, desalinate seawater, and restore communications with limited materials and almost no infrastructure. Men and women joined up in droves to be a part of the fight on the surface. Eventually, the trusted allies were able to make some offensive moves, first into the bordering areas of Central America, where the SA stronghold had been almost invincible in the early years of the war. Little by little, the Allies made progress, pushing the Essays further back. Although they wanted an eye for an eye, the Allies never fired back with nuclear devices of their own. 
The fact that the attacks came out of the Amazon was especially important from an environmental standpoint. World leaders knew enough about global weather patterns to know that destroying the Amazon with nuclear warheads was simply not an option if there was any hope of preserving the planet. So, the Allies fought on the ground. Ale didn't know it until much later in life, but he had narrowly escaped death by the bomb that was meant for Washington, D.C. on that fateful June night. His memories of the time were of panic and disorder. All major metropolitan areas were evacuated, including his hometown of Baltimore. His father, Nick, enlisted in the Army the very next day, and it was the last time he would see his father alive. It was six months before his 18th birthday when the last stand happened in Sao Paulo, Brazil. A fitting place, since that's where all the chaos had started so many years before with the Sao Paulo Olympic Games. Over one million soldiers lost their lives in the battle, but the trusted allies won the day, and the essays surrendered on June 16th, almost a decade after the start of the war. All of the South American countries and their allies were now under the control of the trusted allies after the signing of the Sao Paulo Peace Treaty. Not long after that day, people emerged from the underground shelters. The rebuilding began and the world economy actually boomed under the new flags of trust and unity. Ali spent two years helping out during the rebuilding effort, and when universities began to admit students again, he was one of the first to enroll. He earned a double master's degree in aerospace engineering and computer science, which led him directly to NASA. Political leaders wanted to revive the manned space program to provide a boost to American morale, NASA, with the help of commercial companies looking to contract satellite time, turned their attention to rebuilding the satellite communications fleet. Few satellites had survived the decade-long hiatus, and of those, many were outdated and in rough shape. A total redesign was necessary to get communications back up to their pre-war speed. By the time Alley took the position as the head of the communications department at the TDRS launch, the war was a fading memory, making way for a new era of space exploration. Thanks for listening, sci-fi fans. In the next episode, we'll continue our history lesson and learn more about the Delta Space Station, who built it, and what happened to its crew. You don't want to miss it. See you then. Bye.